Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us for our new podcast, which is on biodiversity. I'm delighted to have with us today Dr. Simon Atwood and Dr. Akeem Doberman. Dr. Simon Atwood is an expert in land conservation and management. He's helped to design and deliver the Australian government's environmental stewardship program and more recently worked on projects in Southeast Asia and the Pacific to improve ecosystem services for rural development and biodiversity conservation. Dr. Akeem Doberman is a soil scientist and agronomist with over 30 years work experience in all world regions. His main interests lie in science and technology solutions for food security and sustainable management of the world's major agricultural systems. So thank you very much, both of you, for joining us today. Just to begin with, Simon, can you tell us what is biodiversity and why is it important? Many thanks for the introduction and also for the invitation to be on this podcast. What is biodiversity? So basically, it is all the different kinds of life, all the vast labyrinthine variety of different animals and plants and fungi and microorganisms. And it's also genetic diversity. And it's also ecosystems. So that's a sort of a, a collection of different organisms within their physical environment. It's quite a complex definition when you look at it from that point of view. But if you think of it as the variety of all life, including humanity, I should say, and including domesticated animals as well to a large extent, then that's sort of within that ballpark. Just to give you a sort of an indication of when we say diversity, how huge this actually is. So scientists of um, taxonomists have classified about 1.7 million species at this point. And so that's in the realm of 10,000 species of birds, 5,000 species of mammals, 33,000 species of fish, well over a million insects and that sort of thing. But that's the ones that have got a name and that is the ones that have got specimens and classification and so on. But it's looking like we're nowhere near reaching the end of classification. There have been some quite conservative estimates of the number of species, which are in the order of about 10 million-ish species. But there have been some more recent ones, which are indicating that something like 80% of all life on Earth is actually species of bacteria. And so we could be talking up to an estimate of between one and six billion species. So that's a huge margin of error. And it's also kind of insane sounding numbers as well. So diverse in all its forms. Now, One of the questions that I get an awful lot from people is, right, biodiversity, that's great, but what good is it? What what can it do for us? What is it it doing for us? Why should I be concerned about it? So biodiversity is not just a nice to have. Nature basically provides all the things that humanity needs to survive, or a great many of them. So you can include that in that our food, our agricultural systems, clean water, things like mitigation of climate or or stabilisation of climate, our weather systems, things like pollination, pest control, soil health, all these things that we absolutely depend upon. All of those are intimately linked to the ecological processes and the ecological functions that are often driven by biodiversity, different elements of it. Now, so we've established that there's a lot of it. We've established that we need it. One of the major issues that we have, and I'm sure everybody is kind of aware of this, but biodiversity is in huge decline at the moment, as a lot of authors of, of, um, and authorities are saying that we're in this sixth mass extinction, so previous ones being things like the Cretaceous, where the dinosaurs blinked out. And we are essentially seeing rates of extinction, either at the local level, so particular sites, or within a region, up to the global level, 
of huge numbers of species, something like a thousand times greater than you would expect in a normal period of the way that biodiversity sort of develops over time. The threats, they're many, they're not surprising. It's deforestation, overfishing, pollution, climate change impacts, trapping and hunting and so on. Now, one thing that we've got is that we're in this realm of the uh, Convention on Biological Diversity are developing up a new set of actions and a new set of targets for global biodiversity, this post-2020, as it's called, which are linked to sustainable development goals. And um, one of the things which is really interesting is that agriculture is actually linked to probably about half of those. Thank you, Simon. How can farming affect biodiversity? Okay, so one of the things which is really prevalent is that there's a huge canon of research that shows that overall agriculture, food production, the food systems are the biggest source of impact on biodiversity. They're the biggest source of biodiversity loss. This can happen through a whole range of different processes. So for instance, probably the biggest one is habitat loss through the conversion of natural ecosystems, forests, woodlands, wetlands, that kind of thing, into production land. Another one is the management of land that's already under agriculture. So this can often be highly intensified production. So you might go from a a relatively low input system, which supports a lot of its own biodiversity, to something which is highly simplified, monocropped, soaked in pesticides, and so on. You can also have a lot of offsite impacts. So one of the very common ones is if you've got agricultural land with a heavy load of nutrients, or you've got heavy soil erosion due to too much tillage, and plowing, then you can get a great deal of runoff, which can find its way into river systems, into coral reef systems, and so on. Also, agriculture is a massive contributor to climate change, quite considerable there as well. And obviously, that has long-term biodiversity impacts as well, and can also interact with other threats. And so you get this sort of double whammy effect. And then, oddly enough, there's also the idea of of, um, land abandonment. In some cases, Agricultural systems are actually really, really diverse. You've got this kind of other side of the coin. Many agricultural systems have got species which are pretty dependent upon these kind of complex agricultural systems. And what happens is if land gets abandoned due to it not being profitable or, or aging farming communities and so on, then it can actually have a detrimental effect. So it's not kind of a a simple message within that idea that agriculture can actually impact negatively on biodiversity. It can also have some degree of positive impacts as well. Thinking about more specifically the impact of fertilizers, Akim, what impact can fertilizers specifically have on biodiversity? Yeah, thank you. We are currently reviewing this with the Scientific Panel for Responsible Plant Nutrition, and um, in a couple of months, we'll publish a more detailed paper. But when we started reviewing this, we became aware of the enormous complexity of direct and indirect impacts that nutrients have, not just from fertilizers, but all nutrient sources, which could also be manure, for example, or even biological nitrogen fixation. But fertilizers clearly play the biggest role. And we identified four impacts, uh, both uh, positive as negative uh, impacts uh, that happen. And, you know, one typically uh, dealing with uh, what happens if you actually have too little nutrients in a system and the three others are largely caused by high or even excessive nutrient applications. So if you have too little nutrients in a system, then you typically get uh, soil nutrient depletion 
you have low crop yields uh, and actually then an increased uh, conversion of natural ecosystems uh, triggered because you need to produce food. Uh, and that is perhaps a very large, uh, massive biodiversity loss, uh, land use changes associated with uh, low crop yields and pushing farmers to uh, chop down rainforest or other types of natural ecosystems. It can also lead to land degradation uh, and that could lead to erosion and other kind of uh, impacts on biodiversity downstream, or even to increase the human conflicts. So that's a typical situation that you would find maybe in some countries in Africa where we have very low nutrient input. But the other three pathways have to do with field scale or landscape scale or even global scale impacts from higher or excessive nutrient applications. So at the field scale, you may get impacts from long-term fertilizer use on soil biodiversity, both in terms of microbes as well as uh, soil fauna, or even soil organic matter and changes in soil pH, which then triggers uh, other implications on the functioning of the soil. You may also have uh, waste spills uh, of nutrients uh, from different uh, waste streams that could uh, cause pollution. So that's all at a local scale. At a landscape scale, we have lots of impacts that are related uh, actually to the reduced conversion of natural ecosystems, if you manage nutrients well and have high crop yields, you will need less land to grow the food you need and therefore can spare in landscapes uh, certain amounts of natural ecosystems. But at the same time, at the landscape scale, you may also have uh, reduced plant diversity in adjacent natural ecosystems uh, through increasing edge effects of fertilizer application or spilling into these systems, more or less. Yeah. And at the global scale, uh, starting with impact at the field scale, you have nutrient losses that nutrients end up in the water, nitrogen and phosphorus in particular, uh, causing eutrophication of uh, fresh waters, rivers, streams, lakes but all the way downstream to marine waters and particularly also in coastal ecosystems. And then, of course, uh, often collapsing very sensitive uh, biodiversity-rich systems such as coral reefs. But you may also have gaseous uh, nutrient losses, uh, ammonia, nitrous oxide, NOx, uh, uh, that cause uh, air pollution, nitrogen deposition, and change the species composition in natural ecosystems for because of the higher nitrogen input coming back to the land. But they also cause greenhouse gas emissions and contribute to global warming and therefore also have an impact on biodiversity. You see, it's a very complex world with fertilizers playing a massive role in many processes. Excellent responses there, Akim. I just a um, couple of points I sort of wanted to emphasize. One is that at the local scale, what are the impacts of different rates of fertilization application within agricultural systems and cropping systems on particular aspects of the biodiversity that lives in the soil. So, you know, these are generally animals, very, very small, often microscopic, that really have a very limited range of movement in terms of what their perception of of their landscape is. So you're talking, in some cases, a few cubic centimeters to the most maybe a few cubic meters and what's really been interesting from the that sort of research that's at the field scale is that some species groups tend to decline 
when you put on a great deal of fertilizer application, particularly inorganic fertilizer. So earthworms, for instance, don't necessarily respond very well to large levels of inorganic fertilizer application. On the other hand, soil bacteria seems to do pretty well in most cases, and you actually get an increase in diversity of soil bacteria as a result of some quite high levels of nutrient application. So as you said, it's quite a complicated picture. It's not even like at a particular scale, you get a, a general downward trend. There are some upward trends as well. So the implications of that from a like an ecosystem service ecological function point of view are really kind of interesting and probably pretty important to look at as well. And I just want to sort of put a bit more emphasis as well on that idea that it's fair to say, and there's, again, there's, you know, there's some peer-reviewed literature to back this up, that the use of fertilizers has raised yields, obviously, and, and increased productivity massively in many parts of the world where they've been applied. And this has actually resulted in, uh, in many cases, a reduced incentive to actually clear more land for native vegetation. Can't overemphasize the importance at all of retaining native vegetation systems for biodiversity. Once it's lost, you know, it's lost. People talk about ecological restoration and so on. Those processes to get forest back or to get heathland back or whatever it be can take decades, quite frankly. Possibly in some cases, you know, we're talking hundreds of years for restoration to to fully replicate what was there before. So this idea that there's a perhaps a trade-off between local biodiversity losses and landscape scale biodiversity losses with actual global biodiversity benefits through fertilizer application. So I think that there's yeah, there's a great deal of work to sort of look at how that balances out and trying to get to work, you know, what are the net biodiversity balance sheet from uh, use of fertilizers in agricultural systems. Thank you, Simon. So clearly, the excess application of nutrients is only one part of the problem. We also have land conversion, which is um, a key consideration. Akim, what more do you think can be done to address the underuse of nutrients in production systems in many parts of the world and the lack of sustainable intensification that are, are potentially contributing to this, uh, these problems of land conversion? Yeah, I think it's very clear that uh, uh, in those parts of the world where nutrient input-output budgets are negative uh, or too close to neutral, we have a risky situation that needs to be overcome and is not sustainable. And of course, the, ideally, we could say, well, you know, we'll just shift excess nutrients in those parts of the world where we have big excess production or consumption, for example, in Europe or in China, if we could somehow manage to shift all those nutrients uh, to those places where they are most needed in Africa and, or sub-Saharan Africa in particular, but also some other parts of the world, for example, pockets in Latin America, but also still in Asia and in, in, in Russia and the Far East. So that's not easy to do, uh, but in principle, that is what we need to do. We need to achieve future growth in agricultural production on a global scale with a decoupling of fertilizer consumption growth, but at the same time shifting fertilizers where they are most needed. And Africa is by far the biggest challenge in the next uh, 20 to 30 years to tackle. We have average uh, fertilizer rates uh, in most of sub-Saharan Africa of only 20 kilos uh, uh, per hectare of all nutrients. 
There's a few exceptions of that, only four or five countries in which it's closer to 50 or a little more. But we're talking about nutrient input levels that are essentially a tenth or less of what they are in more intensive agriculture in, in Europe or other parts of the world. Yeah. And that is essentially a challenge that requires significant investment also in terms of infrastructure, but also ensuring that fertilizers become more affordable and accessible to farmers in those places. So this is a, a big challenge also for the industry. We have seen some progress in recent years, uh, but it has not been fast enough, and I think it needs to be accelerated now. Thinking about cases where excess of nutrients do impact biodiversity, Akim, how can nutrient management be improved to better protect biodiversity? In principle, um, it is a matter of uh, better planning, more coordinated action, and at the farm level, the rigorous implementation of uh, good nutrient stewardship measures for our nutrient stewardship that we particularly promote also for fertilizer use, the right source, the right rate, the right time, and the right place. But that needs to be done in conjunction with a more holistic approach of measures. It's not just fertilizer use of farmers, but it's often also a multi-stakeholder approach that is needed to tackle other sources of nutrients uh, that could potentially for biodiversity implications, even, for example, from, from urban waste or human processes. I think it's good to look at this in the form of an example. The Great Barrier Reef in Australia uh, is one of those. It's uh, well renowned for its ecological importance and natural beauty, but and also its economic contribution to Australia's tourism sector. Uh, but it's under increasing threat uh, from land runoff associated with past and ongoing agricultural inputs besides the climate change and global warming impacts. So, so catchment management, coastal development, extreme weather events and climate change impact the coral bleaching events in the Great Barrier Reefs, and they've been a source of major concern. But progress is being made. In 2017, scientists uh, agreed on a consensus statement that provided the scientific understanding for then developing a Reef 2050 water quality improvement plan in which all stakeholders agreed to concrete targets that need to be reached already in 2025. And that included also actions related to the farming communities around that and also contributions that industry can play. So in this approach, uh, it was possible to agree on specific targets for nutrient load reductions. And if you read those, you know, there was a, a target to reduce the end of catchment dissolved inorganic nitrogen loads by 60% in 2025. And so far achieved have been over 25%. Likewise, uh, there is a goal to reduce end of catchment particular phosphorus loads by 20% in 2025 and nearly 17% has been achieved. So if we have that multi-stakeholder agreement, a holistic approach, multiple interventions by different actors combined with clear targets and a solid scientific basis, it becomes uh, possible to achieve economic development, further farming development, and other goals while also actually achieving targets related to biodiversity and preserving beautiful ecological systems like the Great Barrier Reef. Simon may be able to 
maybe add a little bit more to this, also other examples from his own experience. Yeah, thanks, Hakim. Look, I think that was very well put. I think, you know, the Great Barrier Reef is, as you said, it is kind of the kind of shining example of A, what can go wrong, and B, how to start to put things right through this multi-stakeholder process. And also, as you say, managing things at very, very large scales. I mean, if you think about that area, anybody who's been there, a lot of the farming is up on the Atherton Tablelands, which is perched well above the reef and somewhat inland. But it shows that these percolations over time of, of nitrogen and phosphorus can occur and can actually have considerable impacts. And obviously, then you magnify that through some of the urban runoff impacts as well, which obviously get a little less publicity. And you start to end up with a serious problem at the reef level. Now, the reef is is obviously always going to command national in Australia and international attention because of, as you said, what it is. It's a world-class natural heritage site, one of the most important areas in the world for biodiversity and underpins a huge amount of tourism revenue. I suppose my thing is, how do we then address this for less glamorous sites that are not as biodiverse, not as important, don't necessarily have a huge ecotourism trade, but still have kind of their importance either individually at the local level or when they're kind of a combined together, as it were. So you, you start to get this cumulative effect. And I think that, you know, one of the things that is really needed quite urgently now is this idea of better land use planning about where intensive agriculture actually takes place. And there's been quite a bit of research looking at the coincidence, spatial coincidence of where agriculture either needs to intensify because it's got big productivity or yield gaps due to, you know, often just very low, unnecessarily low, insufficient levels of fertilizer application. And how does that coincide with so-called biodiversity hotspots, parts of the world where you do have a lot of biodiversity, you might have a lot of species that are found nowhere else in the world. So I think that with a better spatial understanding, as there is now, of where those points of coincidence actually are, I think that there's there's good opportunities to start to develop much better planning in those regions. And often it can be a case of, we're not saying you can't have intensive agriculture in those systems, but it's a case of, of ensuring that Input levels are of a level that matches land capability and, and the requirements of crops. And also taking, as you said, a more holistic integrated approach where we maybe start to look at the inclusion of um, legume rotations as well. And then also relatively simple management activities that are less about agricultural management and more about conservation on farm, biodiversity conservation. So things like buffer strips between production systems and points of dispersion of nutrients. So for instance, having a some sort of vegetative buffer, whether that's grasses or shrubs or trees or a combination of all of those between areas of nutrient application on cropland and adjacent wetlands, waterways, and so on. It's not going to entirely eliminate it, but when that's done well, it can actually intercept quite a lot of excessive nutrients and reduce the issues with those either at point or downstream. What that also does, of course, is when you start putting in um, elements of semi-natural or native vegetation back into a system, you actually start to have other biodiversity benefits as well. So, you know, can be useful for pollinators, can be useful from an integrated pest management point of view, which means maybe you don't need quite so many pesticides 
in the first 20, 30, 40 meters of the crop, something like that. Also good for connectivity for a lot of wildlife species as well. This can be seen in some palm oil systems where palm oil is grown rather more responsibly. Uh, if there's a few locations in Borneo, for instance, where that's happening, there's a, an option to retain maybe 50 to 100 meters width of native forest along riparian, along river bank areas. This is really, really good from the point of view of reducing nutrient and pesticide flows into the river system. But it's also really good habitat for things like proboscis monkeys. And it's really useful for a lot of species like jungle cat to actually move around the landscape successfully. So it can have a a whole range of benefits in that respect. What I'm hearing from, from you both is that the relationship between farming, plant nutrient management, and biodiversity is a complex and nuanced one. We've only been able to scratch the surface of this very interesting and detailed topic. Before we end the podcast, thank you very much for taking part. And can I ask if you have any final thoughts on the topic? Simon, let's start with you. Yeah, I think that what's happened is, and that there are many, many good, plausible and factual reasons for this, is that agriculture, biodiversity have been put in direct opposition to one another. Now, there are cases, many cases around the world where that is a completely valid perspective. Agriculture is still the biggest threat to biodiversity. However, it's not all trade-offs. There are a huge range of win-win options that can be achieved at the farm level all the way up to the multiple farm kind of landscape type scales as well. I know one of the things that has been sort of proposed is this idea of sustainable intensification. And it's I'm dangerously tipping here into buzzword territory, obviously. But there are a range of actions that can be undertaken on farm, often through diversification of a farming system. So that's not just about the the wild biodiversity responses that we've been talking about so far. But this is more around this idea of agricultural biodiversity, different crops, different varieties, different land races, as well as integration of livestock into these systems as well. You get a more diverse system. You get the opportunity to introduce more organic fertilizer into your system simply because of the proximity of livestock to the cropping system, which for a lot of smallholders, half a billion smallholders around the world, that is actually quite a reality. And often these farms are highly biodiverse still. There are these options to do that. What we need to be able to do, though, is ensure that if we have a diverse system that is good from an ecological point of view, that it's also productive, that it actually generates a whole lot of food. Because what we need to be able to do is somehow, through these mechanisms, is achieve this capacity to deliver safe, nutritious, and all the other aspects, food, to you know, 9, 10 billion people projected by 2050 without clearing several more million hectares per year of land that's currently under native ecosystems. So really starting to look at how that can happen. So having wildlife-friendly farming methods, to use that term, that are also highly productive. There are techniques out there, but it's what's going to work in which situations and how do you scale this? How do farmers get trained in their, in their tens of millions globally? So the, the, those are some big challenges, I think. Thank you, Simon. And Akim, do you have any final thoughts? I'm optimistic. Uh, I know that uh, we've done a number of things wrong in agriculture and how we produce and consume food. 
I believe that uh, now is the time to learn from those mistakes. And I also believe that farmers intrinsically are the best stewards of the land and the surrounding ecosystems and other natural resources. I think there's no particular reason for why any farmer would want to destroy the ecology or the soil or pollute the waters. So if the framing conditions are right to do better, farmers all over the world will respond to that and we will have a future in agriculture in which we are able to produce the food needed and at the same time hopefully also do more good for biodiversity. Simon and Akim, thank you very much for taking part. Thank you to all of our listeners and I hope you will join us again for the next episode. Thank you. Thank you.